Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in National Security. I'm Paul, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be chatting with Christian Sonner, a historian of the Middle East, who in the fall will be headed to Cambridge to take up a position as a research fellow at St. John's College. Mr. Sonner is presently finishing his PhD at Princeton University. Most importantly for today, however, he is the author of Among the Ruins, Syria, Past and Present. The book is published by Oxford University Press. Hi, Christian, and welcome to New Books in National Security. We're so pleased to have you here today to talk about your book. Thank you for the invitation, Paul. Great to be with you. Great. Now, how did you uh, begin work on Among the Ruins? I understand you had a number of different potential book topics in mind as you were initially traveling and staying in Syria. So all of this goes back to my first visit to Syria, which took place in the summer of 2008. At the time, I was a student at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship and had just begun my Arabic studies. And at the time, Receive Wisdom said that there were two places in the Middle East that people should go to master the Arabic language. One was Cairo and the other was Damascus. And basically, it was pure luck that brought me to Damascus. Um, I would spend my weeks poring over Arabic grammar, uh, trying to master Arabic vocabulary, mostly foiled in the process, um, and on the weekends traveling around the country. And in the midst of all this, I kept very, very careful notes uh, in a diary, uh, notes about my experiences, notes about conversations, um, everyday encounters. Um, and so the, the book ultimately draws on these experiences and these, uh, these many months spread over a three-year period um, of living in Damascus, living as a student, getting to know the country um, and its people. Uh, I had always had an interest in journalism, um, and indeed, after I graduated um, uh, in 2007 from Princeton as an undergraduate, I spent a summer as a fellow at the Wall Street Journal and continued to file dispatches with the journal about my experiences in Syria. And so the idea of writing a book for a general audience had been on my mind for a long time. Uh, and I always knew that Syria was an interesting and a fascinating place. But for the most part, I figured that it was interesting and fascinating for myself. Um, of course, history changed in a very, very profound way with the onset of what we once called the Arab Spring. And suddenly a book project, which I had thought about that might have revolved around uh, profiles of major monuments uh, across the Syrian countryside, profiles, snapshots of uh, unknown moments in Syrian history. Suddenly the urgency of the project changed. And I realized that there was a need and there was demand on the part of a public that was reading about Syria in newspapers in a way they had not in decades um, and yet there was a real deficit, to my eyes at least, um, of good information about it. If there were good books written about Syria, for the most part, these books dwelt on uh, the events of the very, very recent past, the Arab Spring and its aftermath. Um, if you were lucky, you might get some background on the rise of the Ba'ath Party and the Assad family. Um, but to my eyes, as a historian of pre-modern Middle East, what really mattered were not events of the past 40 years or even past 100 years, uh, but the deep past, the, the past. As it, as it was shaped during late antiquity uh, in the Middle Ages with the Ottoman Empire and its collapse. And it was that deep history that I was interested in giving readers access to. Um, and, uh, uh, and along with that history, um, I felt that 
I could make it go down more easily in a sense um, by combining it with my my experiences. So out of this process came a, a book with a distinctly hybrid style. Um, on the one hand, history for the educated lay reader on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, my own experience is essentially a travel writing. The idea being that the history um, can fortify and give context to the anecdotes, and likewise, the anecdotes can uh, enliven and make the history pop. And the result is Among the Ruins, Syria Past and Present, um, which has been out now for uh, the past few months. Early in the book, you talked about the Syrian sense of history, this feeling that Syrian history only really began with the arrival of Islam. How did the conquest of Syria by Muhammad's immediate successors shape the country's history? Often when we speak about the rise of Islam across the Middle East, and in particular in the Levant, I think there are a lot of widespread images in our popular culture of conquest by the sword, of widespread destruction and chaos. Um, but in fact, if you look carefully at the historical record, it's, it's quite the opposite. And so, yes, while the arrival of Islam in the mid-600s in Syria did represent a major watershed in the history of the country. Um, in many ways, it left many things intact. Um, it brought as much new um, as it preserved the old. Um, and so this is actually my, my real area of research where I spend most of my time thinking about the pre-modern history of the Middle East, um, how the ancient world transitions into the medieval world, how the Roman Empire, um, whose heartlands were really located in the eastern Mediterranean, places like Syria, um, over the course of several decades, beginning in the mid-600s, course of several centuries for that matter, transitions into what we recognize as the medieval Islamic world. Uh, that is a story that applies to many parts of the greater Middle East, whether we're talking about Morocco, Egypt, Iraq, uh, even the Caucasus. But what made Syria unique in this early Islamic period was that it very, very quickly found itself at the center of Islamic history. Um, Damascus was the seat of the first Muslim dynasty known as the Umayyads, who ruled from 661 until 750 when they were toppled by the Abbasid dynasty, uh, who uh, moved the capital to Iraq and founded the city of Baghdad that we all know today. And so there was a glimmer, a relatively long glimmer, in fact, at the beginning of Islamic history when Syria uh, really stood at the center of world affairs. Um, and this sense of history, the sense that history began with the coming of Islam, is understandable in this context. Uh, which is not to say that Syria did not have a rich history or a proud history or a very important history before the rise of Islam, far from it. But Syria's imperial moment, as I put it in the book, really began with the arrival of these Arab armies, the establishment of the capital in Damascus, um, and uh, and the conquest of the ancient world, um, uh, which which takes place. It's, it's really a Syrian story. Um, and so when I write about this as, as, as the reference point, I think, for the beginning of Syrian history, or at least how many Syrians today conceive of it, that's the reason why. I found the discussion of religious coexistence in Syrian antiquity really interesting. How were Jews, Christians, and Muslims living and interacting in late antiquity in Syria? And did you find many vestiges of this period, even as you walked the streets of modern-day Damascus? Absolutely. Well, I should begin by saying that um, it's a slight misnomer, furthermore, that the rise of Islam uh, changed the religious demography of the Middle East overnight. Um, what we imagine as the heartlands of the Muslim world, let's call them today's Arab countries, in fact, were majority Christian areas for centuries after the, uh, the Islamic conquest. Uh, prior to the rise of Islam, as I said, uh, the eastern Mediterranean was really the beating heart of the ancient Christian world. 
uh, it's often pointed out that the patriarch of the city of Baghdad in the year 800 after the conquest, but admittedly in an early medieval context, the patriarch of the city of Baghdad had more butts in the pews, so to speak, had a greater and larger flock than the Pope in Rome. Um, and looking at the Middle East today, um, where Christianity is in many ways a struggling minority, depending on where you're talking, it's hard to imagine a world in which, uh, uh, you know, the so-called Islamic world was in fact nothing of the sort. It was in fact a more or less intact Christian world with sizable numbers of, of religious minorities, including uh, Muslims, Zoroastrians, pagans, and Muslims. Um, it's hard to imagine that world um, as it was many, many centuries ago. And so the period of late antiquity is often regarded as, you know, it's, it's, it's the home to many, many major religious uh, changes in global history. It's the story of the rise of Christianity and the Roman Empire under Constantine. It's the story of the codification of rabbinic Judaism. And of course, it's the story of the rise of Islam. And so all of these groups and all of this activity in many ways converges on Syria. Um, Islam is the culmination of the story in many respects. Um, so relations on the ground were uh, were not bad. Uh, the early Islamic period uh, has exceptionally few instances of systematic persecution. Um, for the most part, the Muslim rulers of the Middle East were content to tax uh, their non-Muslim subjects who were taxed at a higher rate than their Muslim subjects um, and were essentially content to do that and let them be. Um, in the process, of course, there was a large-scale conversion of the Middle East to Islam. And this is a this is a process that unfolds over the course of many, many centuries. But the point is, um, you know, for the most part, things were, were not terribly, terribly bad. Um, and we can see the vestiges of this coexistence uh, in the late antique period in Syria today. Um, Syria, like many other countries in the Levant, um, is still home to large Christian communities. Uh, until recently, it was also home to sizable Jewish communities that were concentrated in big cities like Aleppo and in Damascus. Uh, there are also a variety of Muslim sects. Um, and so Syria's religious history, Syria's history full stop from late antiquity until the present has really been uh, a history and a story of, of diversity, um, of coexistence, um, often a tense coexistence. I don't want to give the impression this is... Uh, um, that things were always irenic. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Syria's history is one of religious groups living side by side, more or less comfortably, um, to a much greater extent than it is a story of religious groups um, at constant loggerheads, um, or uh, or is it a history of sectarian, sectarian bloodshed? Um, in many respects, those are exceptional moments in Syrian history, as opposed to being the main storyline. As though in many of the monuments that you walked around and the religious areas that you visited, they were back to back with areas belonging to different sects and, and different faiths um, side by side and, and intermingled. Did, did you find this was often the case and this is a testament to Syria's history? Absolutely. One of the great delights of visiting Syria and indeed any country in the Levant or Egypt for that matter is to discover historical sites that have essentially been recycled throughout the centuries, recycled by the great succession of civilizations that have moved in and out, have conquered and lost land, etc. Um, and so the quintessential monument in this respect is the Umayyad Mosque of Damascus. Uh, the Umayyad Mosque of Damascus was built around the year 700 um, by one of these Umayyad caliphs who ruled from Syria. Uh, it's probably the most famous monument in all of Syria and one of the oldest standing mosques in the world. And the way in which it epitomizes this story of, uh, of, of religious coexistence is that uh, the site where the mosque stands was uh, long before the rise of Christianity, the home to pagan temples. 
uh, when the Romans came in, they eventually cleared the way and it became a massive temple dedicated to God Jupiter. Uh, with the rise of Christianity, that temple was raised um, and it was replaced by a basilica dedicated to St. John the Baptist. And according to tradition, it contained uh, the relic of the Baptist's head. Um, and interestingly, that basilica uh, remained standing for many decades after the conquest of Damascus by Muslim armies in the 630s. Um, and in fact, for that period between roughly 636 and 700, when it was raised, the Basilica of St. John the Baptist was a site of prayer for both Muslims and Christians. Um, and it was only um, around the turn of the 8th century um, when uh, when the Umayyad Empire is truly expanding, is truly feeling its oats as a world empire, and Islam is coming to a much more robust sense of itself theologically, as well as a more robust understanding of the frontiers between it and the religions around it, that I think the Umayyad rulers of Damascus realize that maybe it doesn't look so good um, to be worshiping in rented space uh, that belongs to our religious rivals. And so the church is raised and up comes the Umayyad mosque. So as I said, the story of coexistence, religious coexistence in Syria is in many ways uh, is also punctuated by these moments of rupture, uh, of tension. And the Umayyad mosque, Syria's most famous monument, embodies both of those stories. Um, it's a place that Christians still visit today. It's a, it's a site of pilgrimage for Sunni Muslims. It's also a site of pilgrimage for Shiite Muslims. And so the story carries on. The aspects of the book that I think I enjoy the most was your interspersing of ancient history, medieval history, with your interactions with friends and, and acquaintances that, that you met. And you talk at one point about an encounter with an acquaintance where, where he says, and I'll actually quote him at length um, because I think it's, it's worth doing. He says, as an American, you like diversity. You have all these races and ethnicities in your country, even a black president. But what if diversity in my society isn't the same as diversity in yours? What if diversity here is a source of violence? Wasn't it diversity that created the violence in Iraq, the existence of all those different groups, Sunni, Shia, Kurdish, Christian? I would rather live in a place that did not have diversity and was stable than live in a diverse place that was at constant risk of falling into civil war. A country that is culturally and religiously united is resistant to dissent. So... I found that this sentiment seems at once jarring to our Western liberal sentiments on civil society, but in the region's context, his point is completely understandable. What do you think the fate is of multicultural, multi-ethnic society in Syria when we look to examples like Israel, Palestine, Iraq, Lebanon, Egypt, and beyond? You make the point that the Syrian civil war is sharply divided along sectarian lines, for example. You know, I've discussed that quote many times over the past few months of I, as I've done book talks. And in fact, it's the quote that I often use to open my, open my talks. And one thing that I don't write in the book, but which has come to my attention ever more in the process of speaking with readers and the process of doing interviews like this is that in many ways, my, my friend was off for several reasons. I think he was off in the sense that he could not imagine uh, the reasons why diversity in his society uh, were a source of, uh, could be a source of strength for him especially in the context of the Iraq war. You know, at that time when we spoke, this, the Arab Spring had not yet descended on the region. But nonetheless, he could look around at the example of Iraq, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, and see the very destructive effects or the manner in which diversity was implicated in very, very destructive conflicts. So I think that was the, the first thing that, that, that struck me was that uh, this sentiment, which at least in my friend's eyes was, was, was commonsensical, was not necessarily true. 
And the second thing was he contrasted the experience of the Middle East in grappling with diversity, thinking about diversity as a source of weakness uh, with how Americans look upon it, in which diversity is a source of strength. In many ways, the United States is an anomalous place. Uh, I think that historically speaking, we shouldn't be deluded into looking upon our past and seeing diversity as a source of strength. Uh, and God, I think after um, many, many decades of, of hardship, war, and injustice, we um, American society has in many ways come to a more robust understanding of diversity as something that is a source of strength. But we've had our own woes, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, Jim Crow, etc. And so whether it's in the Middle East um, or in a North American context, diversity is always something that is challenging. Is it a source of weakness? No. Is it a source of challenge? Is it something that societies must grapple with? Absolutely. Um, now, with respect to the Middle East specifically, uh, as my friend alluded, it's almost become a truism that diversity uh, there is a cause of instability. Um, there, if you open uh, a typical think piece today that wants to give a big picture view of what's going on in the Middle East, usually a story that you'll hear is something like the borders of the present uh, of, the, of the the modern Arab states do not correspond to the real contours of diversity on the ground. That's problem number one. And problem number two um, is that as a result of these artificial borders, uh, the countries that grew up within them um, ultimately came to encompass groups that had no business living side by side. And so diversity almost becomes this te- teleological problem because groups that shouldn't live together are forced to live together. The countries that, that, that they occupy in the long run are unstable. Um, you know, undoubtedly in the midst of the Arab Spring, this is, uh, this is a, a, a major problem. Uh, I would never deny that the existence of diversity is something that is easy to work through through these societies. But there are moments in the past, in Syria's past, in the, in the past of the Levant, um, where we can see the same type of diversity that exists on the ground today, um, but which has managed uh, a more stable uh, or a more kind of optimistic coexistence than what we see today. Um, what we see today is not just the existence of diversity, but the politicization of religious diversity, um, the imposition of geopolitics um, upon existing cultural and ethnic rifts. And so when we think about sectarianism in a place like Syria, on the one hand, it obviously draws on conflicts that are very, very ancient. Um, the Sunni-Shi split dates to disputes that ultimately arise in the 7th century. This is not to say that we are witnessing a 7th century conflict uh, unfold on CNN before our eyes, um, but rather memories of the past can be marshaled uh, for the benefit, for both the use and the abuse of modern political agendas. And that's what makes uh, the fact of religious diversity um, such an explosive element um, of political life today and what also uh, the existence of tech- sectarianism is such an intractable aspect of the current conflict. That was a really interesting comment that we're not seeing a 7th century conflict playing itself out uh, on a 21st century battlefield today. Um, can you expand on that in terms of how you, how you see that um, being the case? One of the obvious ways in which to the undiscerning eye the conflict in Syria is essentially a middle, medieval conflict, is the rise of ISIS. Um, ISIS is a group uh, that alleges to go back to a perceived golden age in Islamic history where there was a unitary caliphate, a unitary caliphate um, like the one that ruled from Damascus in the 7th and 8th centuries, like the one that ruled from Baghdad beginning in the mid-8th century, from Morocco all the way to Central Asia. ISIS aspires to go back to this perceived golden age. Um, and in fact, the very rhetoric of restoring the caliphate, um, 
something that most Islamist groups have essentially never dared to actually attempt um, over the past 20th century is often pointed to as evidence of the, the, the medieval coloring um, of what's going on. Uh, ISIS, despite playing on the rhetoric of classical Islamic history, in fact, looks very, very little like a medieval caliphate, like these classical Muslim dynasties that ruled um, at the beginning of Islamic history. Uh, for To give a very, very specific example, you know, ISIS is famously intolerant of dissent, whether it's the dissent uh, of, of, of Sunni Muslims who don't agree with its agenda or more significantly um, dissent from non-Muslim populations that um, they perceive as unbelievers whose lives are forfeit under their twisted interpretation of Islamic law, Christians, Yazidis, Shiites, etc. This is not representative of how pre-modern states behave. Um, forget the fact that the Umayyad or Abbasid Caliphate um, never had the technical or the strategic capacity to flush out people in the way that ISIS has when it essentially evacuates entire minority populations um, from their historic homelands. Medieval caliphates couldn't do that. But there was also a very different sensibility in the Middle Ages about how you manage diversity. A, a few minutes ago, I alluded to the fact that these dynasties essentially uh, were more interested in taxing their populations uh, uh, than they were in converting them. Um, and, you know, in the long run, there's sort of a, an eschatological goal, maybe not an eschatological goal because it was fulfilled um, over the course of many centuries. But, you know, it's good if these populations convert. But the reality on the ground was rather laissez-faire. Um, and in this very, very specific respect, the, the, the hyper intolerance, the brutal intolerance of ISIS um, uh, bears very little resemblance um, to the models that they allege to, to imitate. And so, yes, in its language and its rhetoric, what's going on now can seem very medieval. But when you lift the magnifying glass of history and compare past and present, you realize we live in a very radically modern moment, not in a medieval moment. It was especially notable that when Baghdadi declared a caliphate, that even members of the far, far extremist fringe of the Sunni uh, jihadist world, many came out and criticized that decision and pointed out reasons in perhaps Islamic law, theology, why that was an invalid decision. Can you comment on that at all? Absolutely. The, the, the historical context for what Baghdadi did this summer in restoring the caliphate um, is, in fact, the dissolution of the caliphate. Um, by the standards of most Sunni Muslims around the world, the last bearers of the office of the caliph were the Ottoman sultans, who ruled from their capital in Istanbul and whose power was dissolved in the wake of World War I, very specifically by an act of Turkish parliament under the leadership of Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey. And so even if the power of those Ottoman caliphs was largely symbolic at the end of their reign, nonetheless, I think in the eyes of, of many Muslims, many Muslim jurists, theologians, theoreticians, uh, the caliphate is as constitutive to uh, the Muslim community, the global Muslim community, as the papacy would be for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you know, you can't imagine a Roman Catholic church without, without a pope. Um, and historically, you cannot imagine a, a, a Muslim ummah, what is known in Arabic as the ummah, the Muslim nation community, without its caliph. And so it has been a tremendously resonant institution um, ever since its dissolution in the 1920s. Now, uh, the fact that it is resonant and that in, in a scatological sense, people want to see it restored does not mean that um, people actually went about trying to do it. Um, it was a favorite hobby horse of terrorist groups. Um, you would often hear bin Laden and, 
is ideological ilk talking about the need to restore caliphate. But as you alluded to, even the most extreme of these groups never went about doing it, um, both for logistical reasons. It's hard to do it. Controlling a caliphate usually implies that you control the territory. Um, there are certain uh, historic and genealogical qualifications that the caliph or whoever claims to be the caliph must technically be of the bloodline of the prophet through the tribe of Quraysh to which he belonged. Uh, the caliph had to uh, enjoy the, uh, the, the support, uh, the consensus support of the world's uh, Sunni religious scholars. So there are a lot of barriers to this um, that hindered, as I said, even the most extreme groups from actually trying to do it. Um, and all of this is to say that the actions of ISIS this summer in restoring or proclaiming a caliphate are really, really extreme. Um, they're evidence not of the fact that ISIS is a mainstream group in Islamic history restoring old traditions, but is in fact almost beyond the pale, even of the standards of, of the worst of these extremists. In Chapter 3, you go on to explore the background of the Alawi sect, of which the Assad dynasty are uh, perhaps its most prominent members. Can you explain who the Alawites are and how the Assad's family's Alawite identity has influenced and been influenced by mainstream Syrian society? The Alawites are the modern ancestors of a sect that developed first in Baghdad in the 9th century, the followers of which quickly spread um, into the Levant, um, and won converts among uh, the rural uh, Arabic-speaking populations of Syria's mountains. Um, and in fact, the origins of the Alawites in the Middle Ages are roughly analogous to the origins of the other Shiite groups that exist within the Levant. Um, and so the Levant is also home to, uh, for example, uh, 12er Shiites, mainstream Orthodox Shiites, um, if you will. Uh, these predominate in southern Lebanon. Hezbollah is the primary political standard bearer of this. Um, all of these different communities, the Shiites, the Ismailis, the Alawites, are the ancestors, or historians believe are the ancestors of the, same, of the same medieval missions. Now, the important thing is that over time, uh, their theological views uh, were regarded as heretical, um, certainly by most Sunni Muslims and increasingly uh, by their Shiite brethren. Uh, they have a very complicated theology, a very complicated belief structure that draws on uh, elements of Islam. It draws heavily on elements of Christianity, Gnostic religion. Um, and the significant thing is uh, they deify Ali, uh, uh, the prophet's cousin uh, and his successor, the fourth caliph, and the first imam, um, according to the Shi'i line of succession. And they have another, a range of other beliefs that separate them from most uh, mainstream Muslims. So heterodox by dint of their beliefs um, and by dint of their geographic uh, homelands, that is to say the mountainous regions along the northwest coast of Syria, um, they were also perceived as being on the cultural margins of society. And so these two factors collude. On the one hand, uh, uh, theological marginalization. On the other hand, cultural and social marginalization. To basically, to, to, to use a crude metaphor, they were the country bumpkins of Syrian history for a long, long time. Now, they rise to power in the 20th century when the French roll in. Um, uh, the French who assume custody of Syria under a mandate from the League of League of Nations, um, begin to empower, selectively empower minority groups in the country as a way of keeping tabs and, and, and keeping control over the Sunni majority. And this is the beginning of the Alawites' rise. They profit from this military experience. Um, and when the French disappear, they start flooding the ranks of, uh, of the Syrian army. Um, and significantly also the most robustly Arab nationalist party on the scene, which is the Ba'ath Party. Uh, and this is the story of Hafez al-Assad, the long story of how he ends up rising to power uh, in the 1960s, becomes president in the 1970s, um, and the rest is history. Um, today, the Alawites, despite having um, uh, uh, major control over Syria's political system, uh, 
constitutes something between 10 and 15 percent of the population. And so the basic fault line of the conflict long before there was ISIS, long before uh, people were worried about terrorist groups, was this essential imbalance of power that uh, this minority clocking in around 10 to 15 percent with this uh, 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 ambiguous uh, identity or rather contested identity in the eyes of many Syrians having uh, an outside share of the political power. This was the basic storyline that drove the conflict. So that's a, a brief overview of the Alawites and who they are. You point out that Bashar al-Assad was for quite some time seen by outsiders as a reformer and a moderate. Uh, you use the phrase, the two faces of Damascus. Would you be able to expand on this aspect of Syria's foreign relations? When Bashar's father, Hafez al-Assad, died in 2000, there was a great amount of optimism. There was optimism within Syria that his son, who at the time was only in his 30s, a very, very young man who had a very glamorous wife who had been brought up in London, uh, who was famously trained very briefly as an eye doctor in London, that this man represented a break uh, with a very gloomy uh, past, a past uh, defined by an autocratic style of rule, sluggish economy, um, constant flirtation with the Soviet Union. So optimism inside Syria and certainly optimism outside of Syria. Um, And in the first year of his rule, Bashar uh, implemented a number of significant reforms these involved removal of his father's cronies from political power. These involved certain reforms aimed at liberalizing the economy. Um, and the Arab, the Damascus Spring, as it was known, uh, was terrifically short. Uh, I think very quickly he was disabused of his optimism, the sense that he could rule by forging a new path. Um, and the story of Assad's presidency after that first year um, is, is the realization that there are that there were ways to rule Syria um, that his father had established and that. The way to secure power was essentially by falling back on those. Um, And so we go from a moment of real optimism, especially inside the country, uh, to a moment of increasing pessimism. Now, uh, of course, Assad cut a very attractive figure um, and the eyes of politicians, whether in Europe or in the United States, um, he was perceived as a credible partner in in reform. Uh, The Syrian regime is historically very adept at um, at, uh, uh, shaking you with its right hand and stabbing you with its left. So great example of this is during the Iraq war um, when uh, very famously the, the regime uh, offers cooperation with the United States to track down terrorist groups operating inside the country. While at the same time, uh, Syrian intelligence services are ferrying um, Mujahideen from the Damascus airport to the frontier with Iraq. And so this characterizes the two faces. On the one hand, President Assad himself, who's camera ready, who appears, he speaks English extremely well. He looks like you. He thinks like you, apparently. But on the other hand, he's beholden to a system that is very, very different from anything that politicians in Washington or in Brussels could recognize. And so when I talk about the Janus face character of the regime, this is really what I'm talking about. Thanks. You moved to Beirut rather than Damascus uh, following the relocation of a think tank that you were hired by. What was your impression of Beirut at the time? And how do you think Lebanon is going to fare as Syria remains mired in this seemingly intractable war? I should say I came to Beirut um, because the conflict in Syria spiraled out of control. I was I was uh, not, in fact, working for a think tank, but rather uh, enrolling in uh, in a year long Arabic boot camp uh, program, a very old and respected program run by the, the, the French embassy originally in Syria, but as a result of the war, had to relocate to Beirut. And so uh, it, it, it was it was a strange experience, you know, to be watching this country 
um, explode literally 40 miles from where you were sitting on the edge of the Mediterranean um, while you enjoyed security and the, the illusion of security and prosperity in Lebanon. Um, and as many of my relatives uh, said to me at the time when I told them I, in fact, was not going to Syria as I had planned, but rather to Lebanon because Syria was too violent. They said, who the hell goes to Lebanon because it's the only safe place in the country, in the, in the Middle East? <laughs> uh, and, you know, we live in exceptional times when, when, when Beirut is, in fact, a safe haven in the region and not other places. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. For me, the miracle of the past few years is how Lebanon has, despite the odds, uh, has managed to uh, maintain a very, very precarious stability. And that was certainly the case when I was living in Lebanon for that year, when I've gone back to Lebanon for a period of several months on and off since then. Uh, whatever the differences within the Lebanese political system over Syria and Lebanese politics remain fundamentally divided over the Syrian issue, much as you could say American politics are divided over the abortion issue or divided over um, uh, different opinions about the size of government. Lebanese politics are and have been for a long time divided over Syria. So whatever the internal differences among these warring parties and the sects, uh, there was a, uh, a tentative consensus that emerged very early on that said that it is best for us to play out these differences and these rivalries in the theater of the Syrian civil war rather than in Lebanon itself. Um, and so this contradiction whereby Lebanese groups, including Hezbollah most notably, are, are fighting inside of Syria, but Lebanon itself has remained retained this precarious calm. So w what is Lebanon's long-term uh, uh, prospect of stability? It's hard to say. I have faith in the Lebanese uh, that I hope I hope the situation carries on. Um, but it's also very, very easy to see how a tinderbox like Lebanon could ignite very, very quickly, um, whether it's a massive car bombing, uh, whether it's a massive assassination, whether it's uh, ISIS establishing a foothold inside the country, or as we've seen in the past few weeks, possibly the opening of the southern front between Lebanon and Israel. Um, but uh, for now, so far, so good although that could change very, very quickly. You conclude by discussing the Syrian conflict as initially a manifestation of the Arab Spring, then turning to civil war, and yet even civil war becoming an awkward term to describe the war there. How do you see the war in Syria now? And is there any hope uh, in your opinion? If I could go back and write the book today, it would be very different in some ways. And in particular, the conclusion that you're alluding to uh, you'll notice, having read the book, that ISIS does not make a significant appearance in the book. I think, hopefully, the book provides the background to the rise of ISIS and groups like it. But the book was essentially finished uh, uh, nearly a year before it was released, and that was in September uh, 2014. So this is really a book that was uh, that was incubated um, at a very, very different moment um, in the history of the Syrian civil war. And so at that time, while it was obvious that the Arab Spring was far too optimistic a term and an accurate term for describing what was taking place. Civil war seemed to work a little bit better, but the, the rise of groups like ISIS and the opening of a third front, um, that it's not merely a contest between the Syrian regime um, and a largely nationalist opposition protesting against local conditions on the ground, this, this 40 year history of, of authoritarianism, but rather you have a third, you have a third front that is beholden neither to neither the regime nor the opposition. And this is uh, in a group like ISIS, um, so th this is the way that I would write the conclusion today that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a war that began as more or less a dichotomous, uh, kind of contest between regime and opposition. Increasingly heterogeneous opposition has now become a three-way contest between the regime, um, which is, uh, which, uh, 
by dint of essentially neglect, is I think on the rise, um, very very sadly, um, an opposition, a secular opposition that is uh, essentially non-existent and extremely dysfunctional, um, and an ever more robust uh, Islamist opposition anchored in in ISIS. So in the midst of these changing configurations, um, I frankly don't have very much optimism in the near term. Uh, for a long time, uh, I have felt that um, very very sadly. Uh, the rise of ISIS uh, would profit one group in particular in Syria, and this is the Assad regime itself. Um, the Assad regime has been responsible for the butchering, the imprisonment, the torture, uh, the destruction of, 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 of so many lives in that country. Um, and yet, when compared with ISIS, um, it's a regime that has institutions that you can speak with, etc. And I think that the politics of real politique in places like Washington and Brussels are increasingly um, making people open to collaboration with this regime that they have never countenanced at a time when the Syrian civil war fell along much tidier fault lines. And so um, in the near term, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, pessimistic. Uh, in the long term, uh, Syria is a resilient place. And, and this is how I can conclude the book. Uh, Syria as, as a country, as a region, um, has sustained uh, many, many decades of conquest, of bitter war, uh, of bitter deprivation and destruction, and has, has come through. Um, and so while it's very, very difficult to predict what Syrian society will look like at the end, um, I, I have great affection and confidence in the Syrian people. And I hope that um, whenever this does take place, whether it's in a matter of years, whether it's in a matter of decades, um, that the society that springs up among the ruins uh, will be uh, much stronger, much stronger for it. I don't want to take up much more of your time, but before we go, perhaps you could tell us about what projects are next for you. Let me, I'll tell you about two uh, different kinds of projects very, very quickly. Uh, in the process of writing the book and doing a lot of speaking about Syria, I've also gotten uh, involved in advocacy on behalf of Syrian antiquities. Uh, 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 a faceless victim of this conflict um, are, of course, the priceless uh, historical treasures that lay scattered throughout Syria as well as Iraq. Um, and these have become victims of the conflict, much as people have lost their lives, have been damaged, lost their livelihoods. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a tragedy uh, in its own right uh, to wipe away a country's past um, is to deny it a future. Um, and so I feel very, very strongly uh, about efforts to protect Syrian antiquities on the ground, uh, to publicize the damage that the world knows, A, what is on the ground in Syria. And this is not just Syria's heritage, but world heritage. Um, and furthermore, uh, to work on behalf of its protection in the long run. So that, that's that's a long term ongoing project that involves writing, speaking. Um, in collaboration with others who were, were working on the issue. Now, as for my scholarly work, um, uh, I am in the process of wrapping up a dissertation that will very quickly, God willing, become a book, um, and it deals with the origins of sectarian conflict between Muslims and Christians. Uh, it's a story that takes place in the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries um, and revolves around the analysis of, of little-studied documents written in Arabic, Greek, Syriac, Latin, and other languages that gave a fascinating window onto the very earliest chapter of Muslim-Christian relations after the rise of Islam. So those are the two things that I have on my mind and that will keep me busy uh, for the foreseeable future. Fantastic. Well, I thank you very much for joining us today on New Books in National Security, Christian. Thank you very much for having me.